This is outstanding. I've been a lot of places. I've done a lot of things that I really like doing. I hit the Grand Slam home run. I hit for the cycle. I've had a hole in one in golf. I've done a lot of things I like doing. I shook hands with President Truman. But I'd rather be right here right now representing these people that helped build the bridge across the chasm of prejudice. Well, as I've made my way to Vero Beach, Florida, to speak to young, aspiring, upcoming baseball players who are participating in the Hank Aaron Invitational, I am still basking in the glow of what was an incredible weekend for the late, great Buck O'Neill, Minnie Minoso, and Bud Fowler as well, but particularly Buck O'Neill, the heart and soul of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, my affinity and love for Buck is not a secret. I wear it on my sleeve and I wear it proudly that I am a disciple of Buck O'Neill. And that is something that I hold in high esteem. And so as I continue to bask, and I'm, I'm sure I'll be basking for a while, it was a surreal kind of experience. Now, granted, I've had time to process everything that was going on or would be taking place. Honestly, I had not been back to Cooperstown since 2008, just when they unveiled the statue of Buck O'Neill and issued the first Lifetime Achievement Award to Buck, even though Buck had passed away. His brother Warren accepted that honor on his behalf, and of course, thus, that Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award is generally given out to someone who embodies the spirit of Buck O'Neill and who have had the kind of impact on our sport that Buck O'Neill had over seven decades in this game. Needless to say, the bar is set very high, which is one of the reasons why the award is not issued every year. There's no guarantee that it will be issued every three years because to reach that level of Buck O'Neill, you will have to have had an incredible career that touches in multiple aspects of this game. Perhaps my not going back to Cooperstown, in my own way, was my level of defiancy for Buck not getting in the Hall of Fame in 2006. Now, I don't know if I initially looked at it that way, but I did come back in June to deliver the Cooperstown Symposium just on the eve of the Hall of Fame induction. And I had an opportunity to play golf with Josh Rawich, the president of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And he asked me about when the last time I'd been back to Cooperstown. I said, 2008. And he looked at me and he said, you were never coming back, were you? And, and I think he was likely right. And Buck O'Neill brought me back to Cooperstown. And I'm so glad, y'all, that I did. There was a little bit of trepidation, I think, in, in me. If I was going to be completely honest, there was some trepidation in coming back even after we got the wonderful news that Buck had finally crossed over into the promised land to reach baseball's level of immortality. 
a place that we all believe that he rightfully deserved to be when he missed by one vote in 2006. And part of that trepidation was selfish of me because I was disappointed that I wasn't going to be able to deliver his speech. The Hall of Fame's protocol is to seek out a family member to do that. And they certainly were well within their right to do that. And uh, it was well within the right of the family to seize that opportunity to speak on their loved one. I had hoped to be able to do that because I thought that we could deliver a message that would bring it home for Buck, the essence of Buck and what Buck O'Neill represented both on and off the field, but perhaps more importantly, what it meant for his museum, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And so as I left Los Angeles, made a quick pit stop in Kansas City, dropped off a suitcase, packed another suitcase and started to head to upstate New York. I flew into Albany, New York to meet my friend Joe Posnansky, who also had that same level of trepidation. I think he also was a little disappointed that I wasn't going to deliver the speech. And he was a little reluctant to want to come out to Cooperstown as well, but he was coming out to support me. And we had a thanks a million buck brunch that was planned, a Hall of Fame brunch that was planned on Saturday that he was going to be a part of, along with Buck O'Neill's protege, Lee Smith, Kansas City Royals owner, John Sherman, the great Bob Costas. And we were all going to gather and tell Buck stories, which we did, and we had an amazing time. Uh, There was one great story after another, and even after that, I was slated to do a public conversation for guests there at the Hall of Fame at the Double Day Field Complex. Uh, And so Joe was going to be a part of that as well. And so he came out really to support me more so than anything else, again, because he too was disappointed that the weekend wasn't going to be what maybe he and I had hoped that it was going to be. At least that was the feeling initially. So we drive in from Albany together and we hadn't had an opportunity to spend a lot of time together uh, because both of us are so doggone busy these days. And it gave us some quality time on the car ride. And the more he and I started to chat, the more we both realized that Buck would not want us to even be remotely hesitant about coming for this festivity. That's not his spirit. And I think we both understood that it shouldn't be our spirit either. And the closer we got to Cooperstown, I think the more genuinely excited we both became about what was about to transpire. And so we get to the hotel, we unpack our bags, and we're going to go down to the Hall of Fame. Joe wanted me to see the Hall of Fame film that he had written And it is an incredible film. Uh, So proud of the work that they did in helping expand and expound on the generations that have been touched by this game, uh, particularly through the lens of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It's a very powerful, very emotional film. And so as we're walking the streets of Cooperstown, I am literally getting bum-rushed by Buck O'Neill fans. 
And it was it was incredible. And, and people, and if they didn't know who I was, they thought I was somebody. You know, people were coming up to me and I'm signing autographs and I'm taking pictures with folks and everybody wanted to share with me how excited they were that this had finally happened. Buck O'Neill is finally going into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And now, as you could well imagine, the energy level is growing even more. And we make our way into the Hall of Fame, and it seems like every two or three steps that I took, someone stopped me, and they wanted to ask a Buck O'Neill question, or they wanted to hear a Buck O'Neill story, or can you tell me about... Oscar Charleston. I heard Buck O'Neill say something about Oscar Charleston. Can you tell me about Oscar? Can you tell me about Josh Gibson or Satchel Paige? You know, how old was Satchel? You know, they, the questions came, the pictures c- continued to come, and old Bob was signing autographs as if he was somebody, but that's what Buck O'Neill does. That's the spillover effect of one Buck O'Neill. To understand Buck's story, you have to go back to Florida, 1911 Carabelle, Florida, to be exact, where a young John Jordan Buck O'Neill was born. He would move to Sarasota at an early age, and Sarasota would soon adopt him uh, as their very own. And I was so proud of the city of Sarasota, who also had a tremendous celebration for Buck as their, their homeboy was moving into his place in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Life was pretty good for because when I was a boy, well, and it was a boom on in, in, in South Florida. That's when we left Caribbean and went to Sarasota. Okay. That's where I really was raised in Sarasota, Florida. Mm-hmm. We went over there and, uh, and oh, good because everybody in Sarasota, well, during that time, 5,000 people, that's all was in Sarasota and everybody in Sarasota knew my mother and father, mm-hmm. and everybody in Sarasota would whip my rump if I didn't act right. <laughs> everybody played baseball. Yeah. Everybody played baseball. And that was uh, when we weren't playing baseball, we was throwing those oranges at each other. Throwing <laughs> <laughs> the oranges, getting in trouble? Oh, yeah, that kind of trouble. You know, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't bad because we, we just throw oranges at each other. We probably never would hit anybody. We were trying, but we missed them. <laughs> Buck always talked about one simple statement that he uttered as he was working the celery fields there in Sarasota with his father. And as a boy, the old men were on one side of the celery field. He sit on the other side during lunch, you know, so that he wouldn't be in grown folks stuff, you know, because anybody who grew up in the country, you couldn't sit there and look in the mouths of grown people as they were having conversation. That was a no-no. So you go and you sit away from them but he could hear what they, he still could hear what they were saying. And apparently they could hear what he was saying because if you understand the, the nature of Sarasota, Florida, or Florida in general in the summertime, it was hot. And, and Buck O'Neill says, damn, there's got to be something better than this. He didn't realize that his father had heard what he said because his dad never said anything about him during the time that they were working that day. But when he got home, his father approached me, says, son, I heard what you said, and there is something better, but you're going to have to leave here to go get it. 
And as Buck would say, he's a pretty good ball player by this time. He had been playing baseball with the grown guys. He had great hands. And if you knew Buck, he had huge hands. So it's not a, it's not a coincidence or a surprise that he had great hands because his hands were like mitts. And some of the biggest hands I've ever seen. And, and he'd become a pretty good ball player by then. And so we know the story of how he could not attend his native Sarasota high school. He ultimately went to high school by the teachings of Emma May Booker. Booker Grammar School. And as Buck would say, he had a crush on Mrs. Booker. Mrs. Booker, he said, was six feet tall, black, and pretty. And, and so, needless to say, it didn't take much for Mrs. Booker to get Buck's attention. Professional baseball, for me, it was the Sarasota, New York Giants. Mm-hmm. Trained in Sarasota. That was John McGraw, New York Giants, up at Tampa. Miller Huggins, the New York Yankees, was up at Tampa. That spring training, mm-hmm. 70 miles south of us, was Connie Mack, the Philadelphia Athletics. So I've seen outstanding baseball all my life. Mm-hmm. And I started playing as semi-pro baseball. I was a kid still at Booker Grammar School mm-hmm. when I started playing with the local team. i tell you what, Mrs. Uh, uh, we always on, we played on the school ground. We had a diamond at the school ground, and after school, we would practice on that diamond. Mm-hmm. And the, the grown men, they would practice on that diamond too. Mm-hmm. So after they finished work, they would come, and some, they'd come early enough, they would see us practicing. Yeah. And so one day, the, uh, we played like they played Thursday afternoon, and, and on the weekend, Sunday. So this Thursday, the man that played first base, he, uh, had to work that day. He couldn't play. So uh, Mr. Brown, who owned, ran the ball club, came by and told Mrs. Booker, said he wanted me to come and play with them that Thursday. She said, okay, so that's where I got started. And so Ms. Booker said, I'm going to teach you summer school. I'm going to teach you night school. And we're going to get you that high school diploma. He ultimately got that high school diploma at Edward Waters College there in Jacksonville, Florida, and then two years of college before the lure of professional baseball would steal him away when Adolph Lukey, Havana, Cuba, came approaching and saying, Buck, I want you to come play for me and my team down at Havana. We're going to pay you $400 a month with all expenses paid. And as Buck would say so prophetically, that was the end of the education. And, and so now it became an education in life and baseball for Buck. And we know the story, or most of us know the story of how he started his career in 1937 with the Memphis Red Sox and then a brilliant move by J.L. Wilkinson would bring him to Kansas City in 1938 where he would join the great Kansas City Monarchs. And uh, I'd love to hear Buck talk about coming to Kansas City and what Kansas City was like because you got to understand that Kansas City, while it was in the middle of the country, it had as much going on as they had in New York and as much going on as it had in Los Angeles, and maybe even more, because it was a mecca for jazz. And as Buck would say, when he joined the Kansas City Monarchs in 1938, I knew I was coming to the heart of America. I never knew I was coming to the center of the universe. And 18th and Vine, y'all, was the center of the universe. Yeah, it was segregated. And there was only 13 blocks that black folks could move in within a very restricted, segregated world there in Kansas City as it was throughout this country. But oh, within those 13 blocks, 
you had everything you needed and so much of it that others were coming to get it, particularly as related to that music scene, that entertainment scene. And of course, the Kansas City Monarchs were the toast of the town. He gets there and Frank Duncan, of course, was there and others who welcomed him in. And, you know, it's like anybody else when you're cutting your teeth. Everybody says, well, you know, you're probably good, but you ain't good as such and such. But quickly, Buck O'Neill stole their heart. And he became the Monarch's starting first baseman. And it was a job that he held until he was ready to call it quits for the Monarchs in 1955. By the time he leaves the Monarchs, he had been player manager for the Monarchs. And he leaves, of course, to go become a scout for the Chicago Cubs. And we've talked about the fact that as a scout, and this came cascading back to me as well, as my friend Lee Smith had joined me on that Saturday for the Thanks a Million Bug Brunch, I later saw Billy Williams that evening, and he was so disappointed that he did not get the information in time to make it over for the brunch. So as I looked up on that stage and saw Billy Williams and Lee Smith, two of Buck's protégés, one that he signed, the other that he saved. Yeah, he saved Billy Williams in this game of baseball because Billy had quit. Billy had left the Chicago Cubs and had gone home. Perhaps he had gotten tired of the racism. Maybe he missed his girlfriend, his family life. All of that for a young kid at that time was very challenging and difficult, as you could well imagine. And Billy called it quits. Went back home to Whistler, Alabama. Who did the Cubs send to go get him? Buck O'Neill. And as Buck would oftentimes tell the story, he said he went there to Whistler for three, four days, and he never said a word to Billy about coming back to go play ball. What he would do was every single day during that stint, he'd pick him up, put him in his car, drive him around to area ballparks, and as you can well imagine, all the kids are excited to see their Billy Williams. He's a major leaguer. And he says, after three, four days of this, Billy Williams says, okay, Buck, I'm ready to go back. The Cubs wanted... Buck to put Billy on the bus, and Buck said, nope, I'm not going to do that. Buck had an old Plymouth Fury, and he put Billy Williams in that old Plymouth Fury, and the two of them drove from Whistler, Alabama, to San Antonio, Texas, and Billy Williams becomes sweet-swinging Billy Williams, Hall of Famer, and Mr. Williams will be the first to tell you that he owes his Hall of Fame career to Buck O'Neill. And then there's Lee Arthur Smith, or as Buck would call him. Most fans would say Lee Smith, but he was never Lee Smith to Buck. He was Lee Arthur. And no one could say Lee Arthur the way that Buck O'Neill could. And, and I think Buck might still be the only one that really calls the great Lee Smith Lee Arthur. And Buck is there scouting this big, strong kid from Louisiana, he gets to a game that Lee Smith is actually catching, but he's catching with no catcher's gear. And Buck O'Neill gets there and he says, Lee Arthur, get out from back there. We getting ready to draft you. And Lee Smith says, what, into the army? He says, no, to the Chicago Cubs. And so that starts a love affair between Lee Arthur Smith and his mentor, Buck O'Neill, that lasted a lifetime. And so as I looked up on that stage and, and I'm 
thinking about all the connections to not just Billy Williams and Lee Smith that Buck O'Neill had to that class, that entire class of Hall of Famers who had come back for the celebration of the class of 22. All of this is kind of cascading back. And so, again, it was so special. We're roaming the streets and it's so very special. And the ceremony would get there and... I, for me, I feel like a rock star because everybody's pulling at me. I'm doing one interview after another. Now, I'll be honest, it was hot. The valley, as Buck called it, was hot. And it was indeed hot that day. But again, when we look back at Buck's career, folks were talking about the grandson of enslaved people who helped in part change, who lived long enough to enjoy some of the change that he imparted. And then uh, built this wonderful edifice known as the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to certainly celebrate, preserve, and educate a piece of baseball in Americana that most of us did not know anything about, certainly nothing substantial. But it also serves as a tool to empower the future generation of young people to impart change. Buck O'Neill was a change agent. Buck O'Neill was one of the great educators of the 21st century. And even though he wasn't educated by trade, Buck O'Neill taught us so much. Some of it was stuff that should have been in the book. Most of it was through his own life lessons. Yeah, he taught us about the heroes of the Negro Leagues. And he certainly taught us about the virtues of his museum, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, as the caretaker of this wonderful piece of baseball and Americana. But he also taught us how to live a life that was filled with love, with joy. As I've so oftentimes said, most of us, including myself, who fell in love with Buck O'Neill, we never saw him play. We fell in love again with the Buck O'Neill who told us about this incredible group of courageous athletes who, as I like to say, forged a glorious history in the midst of an inglorious time in American history. But we fell even deeper in love with the Buck O'Neill who taught us that you could indeed get further in this life of love than you could with hate. And for me to be there, I guess you could say a, a fly, the proverbial fly on the wall, as this man was literally gallivanting across the country, preaching again the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of his museum to any and everyone who would listen. I'm hanging from the hem of his garment. It's almost poetic that now I get to preach the gospel of the Negro Leagues and the virtues of Buck's museum. And the things that I've learned over the course of time, perhaps it's the Buck O'Neill spillover effect as we talked about, because there's something there. And as much as I had lamented the fact that my friend was not going to be there physically with us, I kept going back to that. You know, I'm happy about this, but damn, I wish Buck was here. The more I thought about that while we were there in Cooperstown and, and maybe again on the car ride with my friend Joe Postansky, 
we were able to come to terms and to come to grips with the fact that seemingly everything in Buck's life, as his brilliantly written biography, I Was Right on Time, implied, is absolutely true. Perhaps this was the time for Buck. Perhaps 2006 was it. I subscribe to the belief that everything happens for a reason. Now, for the life of me, I will never understand the reason that Buck O'Neill was left out of that class of 2006, where he missed by one single vote. And I had to deliver that news to him that he didn't get in. And as we said in a previous episode of Black Diamonds, it was one of the most gut-wrenching things I've ever had to do in my life was to walk into that conference room and tell my friend that he didn't get enough votes to get in. When I delivered the message to him, I can still see the look on his face as he was able to muster a smile and say, well, that's how the cookie crumbles. As I've been clinging to my own selfish desire to have my friend be here for that moment. And I think others would have loved to have seen Buck be there in that moment. In many ways, Buck gave us his Hall of Fame speech in 2006. Maybe he knew something that we didn't know. That was Negro League baseball. And I'm proud to have been a Negro League ball player. Yeah, yeah. And I tell you what, they always say to me, Buck, I know you hate people for what they did to you or what they did to your folks. I said, no, man, I, I never learned to hate. I hate cancer. Cancer killed my mother. My wife died 10 years ago of cancer. I'm single, ladies. A good friend of mine, I hate AIDS. A good friend of mine died of AIDS three months ago. I hate AIDS. But I can't hate a human being because my God never made anything ugly. Now, you can be ugly if you want a boy, but God didn't make you that way. Uh-uh. So I want you to light this valley up this afternoon, Martin said, agape is understanding, creative, a redemptive goodwill toward all men. Agape is an overflowing love, which seeks nothing in return. And when you reach love on this level, you love all men, not because you like them, not because their ways appeal to you, but you love them because God loved them. And I love Jehovah my God with all my heart, with all my soul, and I love every one of you as I love myself. Now, I want you to do something for me. I'm thinking to get off this stage now. I think I've done my six minutes. But I want you to do something for me. I want you to hold hands. Whoever's next to you, hold a hand. Come on, you Hall of Famers. Hold hands. All you people out there, hold hands. Everybody hooked up? Everybody hooked up? Well, and I tell you what, see, I know my brothers up here, 
my brothers over there, I see some black brothers of mine and sisters out there. I know they can sing. Can you white folks sing? I want you to sing after me. The greatest thing. Come on, everybody. The greatest thing in all of my life is loving you. The greatest thing in all of my life is loving you. The greatest thing in all of my life is loving you. The greatest thing in all my life is loving you. Thank you, folks. Thank you, folks. Thank you, folks. Thank you, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now sit down. Now sit down. I could talk to you ten minutes longer, but I got to go to the bathroom. So while he was there speaking on behalf of 17 others who had gotten in, all of them dead, which I still say today was one of the most selfless acts in American sports history, the world was saying, it should be your Hall of Fame speech. And just maybe it was. Maybe old Buck was preparing us for something that would come down the road at a time when the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum needed Buck perhaps even more. There was something very fateful that took place because we lost so much of the 100th anniversary. That was going to be this platform that was really going to help propel the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in 2020 to even greater heights. And of course, the pandemic wiped out that opportunity to a large degree. We were able to salvage it by being very creative, doing some other things. But all the, the big national events that we had planned were all derailed by that pandemic. And here we are now, two years later, and an improbable opportunity for Buck O'Neill to move into the National Baseball Hall of Fame comes along. Because in 2020, no one was thinking about Buck O'Neill getting into the Hall of Fame except for his fans who had remained so vigilant about wanting to see him in the National Baseball Hall of Fame. But in my mind, I had closed that chapter in Buck's incredible baseball journey. The 2006 election was the end all for the Negro Leagues. And after all, he had gotten the Buck O'Neill Lifetime Achievement Award and he had gotten his own statue, a beautiful life-size statue that greets you when you walk into the gallery of the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Who's there to welcome you? Old Buck. So that was good for me, and I was okay with that. And then the door cracks in 2021 with this inkling that there may be a possibility that Buck O'Neill might be on a new committee's Hall of Fame list for consideration. As we all know, December 5th of 2021, Buck O'Neill gets the votes to be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. It's almost poetic again that Buck O'Neill, who wore number 22, 
is inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in 2022. And it's at a time where the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is preparing to launch an exciting campaign that now is being spearheaded by the man who built the house, the house that Buck built, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and his induction into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. So on Friday, we launched a campaign aptly entitled, Thanks a Million Buck. And the campaign is designed to be a grassroots campaign where we are now challenging folks, hopefully at least a million of you, to consider donating at least one buck to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to help us complete the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center, which will be housed in the Paseo YMCA. That's right, the very building that gave birth to the Negro Leagues. It was in that building that Andrew Rube Foster led a group of eight independent black baseball team owners into a meeting there on February 13, 1920. They walked out having established the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league. In 2006, before Buck O'Neill passed away, he made it very clear that the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center would indeed be his Hall of Fame. As we've mentioned, Buck dedicated his life to educating others. This was going to be an opportunity for his museum to continue that path of educating others as well in his spirit. And so as we launched Thanks a Million Buck, it is our opportunity to say thank you to Buck for again teaching us about the heroes of the Negro Leagues. Thank you for always bringing a hearty, healthy smile along every stop of your illustrious life. Thank you for the humility that you demonstrated. Thank you for the pride that you demonstrated in having been a part of something that other people thought was maybe different than you knew it to be. So it is our collective opportunity to say thank you to Buck. And we hope that we'll get at least a million of you to donate a buck in memory of Buck. And remember, every buck counts. And it will in this effort to finish the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center, where we will house expanded exhibit opportunities, classroom spaces so that we can impact even more young people with this story in meaningful, relevant kinds of ways. There's going to be a tremendous event space because who liked the party more than Buck? No one. And so it will have a tremendous event space in it. There will be... I think one of the most meaningful experiential learning experience in any urban core in, in the country with a math and science of baseball facility inside that space. And as Bug would want it, there will certainly be a Negro Leagues aspect to teaching math and science. So what was it like to try and hit Satchel Page's fastball at 105 miles per hour? Well, you didn't, but we'll put a scientific equation to it so that we can measure reaction time. We will address turn angle and radius by examining the amazing speed of cool Papa Bell. 
All of these kinds of relevant ways to teach math and science will be housed in Buck O'Neill's Education and Research Center. They're at the historic Passell YMCA. And so this is an important next step for the Negro Lakes Baseball Museum. And I hope you will join us and I hope you will pass the word to others. So if you would like to consider being on Buck's team and helping us with this next phase of growth for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, please visit our website at thanksamillionbuck.com and make your contribution and be part of one in a million celebrating a man who is indeed one in a million. This is old Buck. Mm-hmm. God's been good to me. You can see that, don't you? If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. Sirius XM Podcasts.